Well, I am very excited to begin our study of Philippians 4 this morning. And as we get into Philippians 4, you will see it teaches frequently on the themes of joy and contentment. And the idea that you will see even in this passage is that joy and that contentment are not meant to be momentary seasonal things in the Christian life. These are meant to be the constants of the Christian life. And so as I was working on this, it was early actually in the trip to Uganda, and I was thinking about this chapter in this series as we were descending into the Seattle airport. And I was looking out the window and just seeing green. And as I looked closer, I realized while there was a lot of green, I was seeing not everything was green. Some trees, a lot of trees there, were but not all of them. And we see that even here in Idaho. Some trees are green right now. We call them evergreen trees because they're, well, evergreen. They're green all year long, as opposed to the deciduous trees that we don't like as much in the fall because you have to rake and rake and rake all the leaves up that come off the tree. And then the tree looks barren and dead in the winter time. Well, what kind of joy do you want to have? What kind of contentment do you want to have? Do you want to have deciduous joy that's there for a season and looks really good and then withers away and is barren and empty? Or do you want to have evergreen joy and evergreen contentment? Well, I think we would say, well, we all want that. Well, how do you get it? Philippians 4 is going to show us God's plan for constant joy and constant contentment. And so if you haven't already, open up your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. And today we're going to look at verses 1 through 3. And we're going to start this chapter by dealing with really one of the biggest obstacles to joy. I don't know about you, but one of the biggest obstacles to joy in my life is conflict. When I'm in conflict with someone else. Or when people close to me are in conflict with each other. That doesn't tend to make me happy. Uh, That actually is one of the most grievous things in my life and probably in yours too. And that conflict can be in your home. That conflict could be uh, with a family. That conflict could be with someone in the church. That conflict could be in many different places. But here we're going to see God gives us a plan, a godly way to deal with that conflict. Follow along as I read the first three verses of Philippians 4. It says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, Help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So I want to start there in verse one, even though we kind of tied that in with the end of chapter three, the word therefore points us back to the end, reminding us the enemies of the cross will be destroyed, but our hope is in a savior. And when he comes, he will transform us to be like his glorious body. And the central imperative there of verse one is stand firm. 
That's going to be even a part of what extends into all of chapter four. You are standing firm. And we talked about this at the end of our study of chapter three by different things. We need to stand firm in our character. We need to not compromise with the world or, or with any unholiness in our lives. We need to stand firm in our doctrine. We need to teach what God teaches and not care whether or not it's popular or acceptable in the eyes of the world. And one of the other things we mentioned was we need to stand firm in unity. We need to stand firm together. And that is clearly where he goes then in verses two and three as he deals with a specific conflict in the church. But we need to remember today that we stand firm as Christians by standing together. I don't know if you've picked up on this, but the world is against the church. And getting more and more so that way. The world is against people living for Christ. The world is against the, the Bible, the world is against the good news and, and even the idea that there's only one way to be right with God. And that is through faith in Jesus Christ. And we need to stand firm together against that. Well, it's not going to work if, if we are filling our time fighting with each other. How's it going to work in standing firm against the onslaught of the world? It's not. It won't work. And that's why it grieves me when I see conflict within the church. That's why it grieves me when I see conflict in, in the broader church and Christians who seem to find more pleasure in taking pot shots at other Christians than in standing firm against the world. But here we see there is, there is a solution and it's going to start by viewing people the way Paul does here in verse one. We, we just mentioned this last time. Now let's look more at these, but this verse is dripping with affection. And he uses several different titles to refer to these people. First, therefore, my brothers. It's hard to find a word that's a stronger connection than brothers. People that should be more united than that. Yet that is the most frequent word in the New Testament to refer to Christians. And then he refers to them as his Beloved, whom I love. These are people that I love. And then, and then he says, and I long for. I long for these people, right? When I was in Africa, I missed my wife and my kids. I longed for them. Well, guess what? That's what Paul is saying. That's how he feels about the Philippians. I long for you guys. I'm in jail in Rome, but man, I wish I could be there with you. I wish I could see your faces. I wish I could hear your voices and talk to you. I long for you. Then he refers to them as his joy. You are the ones ultimately that bring me joy. My greatest joy is seeing you guys stand firm for the truth, seeing you guys grow in Christ. And then he calls them his crown. Now the word, there's different words in Greek for different kinds of crowns. This is not a, a kingly crown. Uh, this is the, the crown that would be given as an award to an athlete. The, the laurel wreath that would be placed on their heads as an award for winning the competition. He's basically saying, you guys are my trophy. You guys are what I am most proud of. And you see, Paul, he, he views these people as precious. He's not viewing what he can get from these people, but he's praising these people for who they are in Christ. Point number one this morning, view people as trophies, not tools. 
trophies, not tools. And that analogy will work, will work as long as we think like most people do. There's a few of you out there that like trophies, tools, what's the, what's the difference, right? My trophies are my tools, right? And you hold each one of your tools and as something precious. That's probably not most of us here. Uh, we use tools when we need to. And when there's something wrong, there's a problem in your home or in your car or whatever, you get out your tools and you take one out and do I need this? Does this have any use to me right now? And if the answer is no, you throw it back in the box or the bag or wherever you're keeping your tools and you look for what is useful to you. That's not a healthy, that's not a biblical way to think about other people, especially within the church, especially within the body of Christ. Does this person have any use to me? No, okay well, then I'm just going to push them aside. That's not how Christ calls us to think about people. That's not how Paul treated people. That's not, you think about how Jesus, what you saw last week in Mark 5, that's not how Jesus treated people. And remember chapter 2, where Timothy is commended and saying that there's no one like him. Frankly, there's not enough Timothys in the world who, what does he say? Who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. What Paul says, most everybody else, they're interested in their own concerns, not those of Christ. But Timothy, he genuinely cared about others. And that's what Paul wants to model for everyone. People are not tools. Well, do they have any value to me or not? In contrast to that, imagine visiting the home of a successful athlete and having them take you on a tour of their trophy room, right? Each one of those trophies may be different, but they're all valuable. They're each unique and and tell their own story, right? This is the first trophy I ever won. Uh, This is the the hardest trophy, the most adversity I ever had to endure to win. This one was the, the most significant trophy in my career. Each one is different and special. That's more how to think about other people. You should look around the church. You should look at the people that you serve with. You should look at the people in your small group and say, each one of these people is precious. And hopefully I even have memories with, with each one of these people in Christ. Each one of these people is made in the image of God. And each one of these people is a trophy of God's grace. And ultimately that's what he gets to at the end of verse Oh, three, as he kind of comes back again to reflecting on these people and how much they mean to him, he remembers how they've served together, labored side by side with me in the gospel. And then he talks about the rest of the fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. That's a special thing. And when you look out at other believers, you should say their names are in the book of life. This person isn't just a tool for my use or not. This person is precious in the eyes of Jesus Christ and therefore is precious to me as well. That's how we need to start. How do you think about people? Do you look at people through a grid of, am I getting anything out of this? Is this person of any value to me? Or do you view people through the lens of their names are written in the book of life? They are unique and special in the kingdom of God. That's the foundation where we want to start. But let's get into the main idea here in verse 2. He calls out two women by name, Euodia and Syntyche. And it's clear that they are in a conflict with each other. 
And perhaps he calls them out by name because they are prominent women. Remember the church in Philippi started outside the city by the river with a group of women who met there to pray. And it seems that somehow this conflict has become a a big deal because it's not the norm for Paul to call out specific people in conflict in the church. But here he calls them out and he is pleading with them. He repeats the word even, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche. The word could be translated beg. I'm begging with you. I am pleading with you. And clearly he views both of these women as precious to him. And as you study this passage, it becomes clear that there's a lot that is unclear here. We don't know what the conflict was. I think there's some things we can rule out. I don't think it was a serious doctrinal issue. Chapter three, Paul's not afraid to say, hey, look out for the dogs. Uh, Look out for the evildoers, the false teachers. If one of these women was teaching false doctrine, I think Paul would be calling it out. I don't think this is a a, a serious, you know, one-sided sin where one of these women is clearly in sin and the other is the victim because Paul in other letters is not afraid to even recommend church discipline. It doesn't seem to be that. Well, we don't know what the nature of it was, but there was clearly something wrong, something putting these two women at odds with each other. And he doesn't take a side. He doesn't start a formal hearing. Uh, He encourages them to do something. And that's where we could spend all of our time speculating. Uh, But the secret of this passage isn't in, well, if we find out the nature of the conflict, then we can learn from it. No, it's what does Paul say is the solution? And that's right there in verse two. He entreats them to agree in the Lord. And so I was studying, I was clear. If we're gonna get anything out of this passage, we need to know what does that mean? What does Paul mean for them to agree in the Lord? And this is one of those times where knowing uh, the original language and looking at the Greek text is helpful because if you just look at that in English, to agree in the Lord, it's a little bit of, well, thanks for nothing, Paul. That's the whole point. We can't agree. So you're just saying, agree. Well, we've been trying. Well, we can't. Well, that's where when you look at the word in the Greek, the most literal translation would be, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche the same to think. I am encouraging them to think the same way. That doesn't necessarily mean they need to agree about everything in the conflict, but that they're both thinking the same way. Well, that begs the question, what way is that? And that's where it's helpful to see this phrase in chapter four. This is not the first time Paul has urged people to do this. You gotta go back to chapter two. This is a central phrase in chapter two. If you go back there to the first few verses as he exhorts the church there, even carrying over from chapter one, right? He wants to hear that they are with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And as he expands on that in chapter two, he says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, and the assumption is if you're in Christ, yes, you have all of these things. Verse two, complete my joy by being of the same mind. That's the same Greek phrase as we see in chapter four. He's saying, I I want you all to be of the same mind, to think the same way, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And if you go down to chapter five, you see the phrase again. 
well, what is this same mind that we're supposed to have? Well, he goes on to basically say, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. I'm encouraging you to think the same way. I'm encouraging you to think like Jesus. That's what he is really entreating Euodia and Syntyche to do. I'm begging both of you to think like Jesus would, to have that same mindset. Let's put that down for point number two. Solve conflict by thinking like Jesus did. And as we think about our last series, um, we called it No Treasure Like Jesus. And we talked even in chapter three, how Paul clearly treasures and is pursuing Christ's likeness. He wants to be like Jesus. Well, thinking like Jesus in the midst of conflict is where this is going to get tested. Because there's some moments where it's easy to want to be like Jesus. When the storms of life are wailing around you and Jesus is asleep in the boat. Oh, I wish I could be like Jesus, right? Or, or oh, Jesus, he stood firm against the devil in temptation. I wish I could be more like Jesus. Well, when it comes to Well, yeah, there was this guy that Jesus knew would betray him for three years, but he loved him anyway. Do you want to be like Jesus then? Do you want to be like Jesus on the cross with people mocking him and him saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not not what they do? Do you want to be like Jesus then? This is where that is going to get tested. Conflict resolution will cost you. And it will test whether or not you really want to be like Jesus. Now, this is one of those sermons where it's really easy to do what my former pastor called the L-shaped amen. Now, if you think about what is amen, you're saying, yes, you agree. It's one of those sermons where it's easy to say, yes, God, yes, I agree with you, God. That person over there needs to hear it, right? So you get this L-shaped amen. Yes, God, they need to hear it. This sermon's really easy to do that because you're gonna think about someone that you're in conflict with and you're gonna say, yes, God, so-and-so needs to hear it. Or you're gonna think about some conflict you know of somewhere in a family or, or somewhere in the church and you're gonna say, yes, God, they need to hear it. Knock that off. You need to say, yes, God, I need to hear this today. Consider what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, where he says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And I want to just exhort you before we kind of get into what does the mind of Christ look like? I want to exhort you, let's come at this humbly this morning, each one of us to say, God, show me how to live this way. Show me, God, reveal what's wrong in my life, in my heart when it comes to conflict. Whether it's in your marriage or with a family member or a friend or a coworker, come at this saying, God, show me what it looks like to think with the mind of Christ. And as we think through that and process the example of Christ, I want us to see six things Six things in the example of Christ that we need to think, that we need to model in moments of conflict. And the first one is humility. Humility. 
What did humility look like for Christ? He let go of his position, even his rights, and became a servant. That's what it says in, as it goes on there in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Is that how you approach conflict? Or do you say, this is what I need out of this conflict. In fact, this is what I deserve out of this conflict. Or do you say, no, I'm I'm willing to let that go. Like Jesus let go of his place at the father's side to come and die for me. I'm willing to let go of some of my rights, my privileges for the sake of this person. And really the mindset I want to have is how can I serve this other person? That's the context again in chapter two, verses three and four, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. And another place, just jot down James 3, 13. And the verses after that, those verses remind us wherever there's selfish ambition or conceit, you are going to find trouble, trouble, trouble. But no, we don't want that. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Go into conflict saying, how can I serve this other person? Uh, Because they are a treasure in God's eyes. How can I serve them? Don't go into conflict saying, well, I'm the most important person here and I need my needs met. No, that, that's, that's a selfish way to think through conflict. And, and what did the humility lead Jesus to do? The second thing we need to think through is sacrifice. I mean, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. He sacrificed for us. Sacrifice could solve a lot of conflict. James 4 reminds us where conflict comes from. It's saying, well, it comes from your unmet desires. You're not getting what you want, so you covet and you quarrel and you fight and you murder. Well, a lot of conflict then could be solved by, hey, that thing that I want that I'm not giving, I'm willing to sacrifice that. I'm willing to give that up. Are you willing to give things up that might be dear to you in order to get through conflict? Jesus gave up his life for us. And obviously, when you teach on conflict, one of the most common places you see that in any church is within families. Ask any pastor who does any counseling, what's the most common kind of counseling that you do? Easy, it's going to be marriage counseling. A husband and wife, there is conflict with each other. Well, husbands, how does God tell you to solve conflict with your wives? He says, husbands, love your wives as what? as Christ loved the church, and what did he do? Gave himself up for her. There was a really old preacher named John Chrysostom, and he said this. These words are over a thousand years old, but they are still true today. He said this to husbands, have thou seen the measure of obedience? Here also is the measure of love. Do you want to see your wife obey you as Christ does the church? And that's where all the husbands say, Amen. Yes, I do. Well, then you must take care of yourself for her as Christ does for the church. 
And if it be needed that you should give your life for her or be cut to pieces a thousand times or endure anything whatsoever, refuse it not. Christ brought his church to his feet by his great love, not by threats or any such thing. And so you must conduct yourself toward your wife. Husband, is that how you're seeking to win the respect and the obedience of your wife by laying your life down for her, by making sacrifices for her? This is the way of Jesus Christ. This is how he has taught us to think. Humility, sacrificed, And next, let's think about patience, the patience of Christ. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter four, just a couple pages to the left in your Bibles. And I wish Christians studied Ephesians four and Colossians three more. And I wish they noticed how as soon as he starts saying, hey, based on all the great doctrine we've talked about, here is what Christians should do, how these things are central and the first things he goes to in both places. Let me just read a few of the verses. Ephesians 4, 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And kind of an older English way that you'd see even in like the King James version is actually, I think a better translation of the Greek word for patience is long suffering. Because that's even the Greek word. If you just break it down, that's what it means. Long suffering. I'm willing to suffer a long time for these other people. And you see the same idea in Colossians 3. Hey, you want to be a Christian? Be patient. Bear with one another. And and that gives the expectation there are going to be problems. And if you want to be a strong Christian, if you want to be faithful in the church, get ready for problems. And, And many Christians, I think, are naive and just thinking, well, now I'm in church. And everybody's a Christian, so everything's going to be perfect. Not so much, because everybody here is still in process. Everyone here is still in sanctification, becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. Every single one of us still sins. So get ready for some sin. And this is how you are to deal with it. Patience, long-suffering, bearing with one another. Now, when there are are moments of clear, unrepentant sin, right? God gives us a pattern for what to do with that in Matthew 18. Uh, And times where, hey, because of this sin, and usually when we see in scripture something like sexual immorality or even criminal activity or something, no, that's got to go. But that's probably not gonna be your experience every day, every week, even every month with with most of the conflict you'll deal with in the church. This is, hey, we're all working through our sin together. And God's calling me to be long suffering, to be patient. And can I just encourage you with this thought? Again, we're we're trying to think like Jesus. Has Jesus been patient with you? Have you been a perfect Christian? Where would you be without the patience, the long suffering of Jesus Christ? And I'm not just talking about before you were a Christian. I'm talking about since we've all become Christians, has not Christ been long suffering with us? How many times have you, like me, been a knucklehead as a Christian? 
and been slow to grow, slow to trust God. How many times has Jesus probably been looking at you saying, oh, you of little faith, yet he is born with you. He has been patient with you. How dare we refuse then to be patient with others? The lack of patience is such a danger. And I want to commend to you, I have seen patience pay off so many times, even in conflict in the church. One of the biggest problems with conflict, both that I've experienced personally and seen in the church is when people want, I want resolution and I want satisfaction and I want it now, right? That mindset is the enemy of resolution and reconciliation, right? I want this person, I need this person to see things my way. I need them to apologize in a way that is acceptable to me or I need my pound of flesh in response to what they have done. And if not, I'm going to be cold or distance that person. We cannot have a relationship until those conditions have been met. That is not long suffering. Long suffering is I'm going to continue to love this person anyways. And I can't tell you how many times I have seen that work to bring reconciliation, not always immediately, often it's over time. And because somebody was patient with someone else and kept loving someone else, sometimes even years down the road, that person come back like, man, I really was a jerk to you, wasn't I? And the person will be biting their tongue, trying not to say yes too fast. But look, God has brought reconciliation that wouldn't have come without that patience and without that long suffering. And I'm gonna love this person anyways, even though they're not growing as fast as I want, even though they're not admitting what I'd like them to admit, I'm gonna be patient with them. Another thing we see in the example of Jesus, we have seen now humility, sacrifice, patience is meekness meekness or a synonym for that that you see there in Ephesians would be gentleness. Uh, Those words are related, sometimes even interchangeable. And and part of the idea is I'm not always having to defend myself. I, I don't always need to win and everyone to know I am right. Again, think of the example of Jesus in the garden. He could have called down thousands of angels, but he didn't. Right? He could have destroyed them and been right in doing so, but he didn't. And think of other truths that we see even last night. If you came to the worship night, an incredible time of worship as a church family, we read through Psalm 37. And one thing we saw was because of God's faithfulness, time will vindicate the righteous. You don't always have to vindicate yourself because God will vindicate his people. And consider what Jesus said, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. That's not what you're gonna hear in the world. The world's gonna say, hey, you gotta stick up for yourself because nobody else will. You've gotta earn that for yourself or you won't get anywhere. Jesus says, no, you wanna get somewhere? Be meek, be gentle. Those are the people that will inherit the earth. And you'll find in conflict, there could be times where you could win. You could say more to vindicate yourself, but you will choose not to because by doing that, you could destroy somebody else and even be somewhat justified in doing so. But you would say, no, I'm, I wanna be gentle. I wanna be meek because Jesus could have destroyed me many times, but he didn't. And again, I wanna make this application thinking of the homes here, especially thinking of the husbands and the parents here. 
those that God has put in positions of leadership in the homes. Will you please see how God repeatedly directs you husbands and especially you fathers to gentleness. Colossians 3.19, husbands love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Or every time that fathers are addressed in the New Testament, they are warned. They are warned against provoking their children, exasperating their children. Fathers in the room. Yes, God is calling you to teach your children the word. And yes, God is calling you to discipline your children. But do you do that with gentleness and with meekness or do you do it with anger and wrath? Anger and wrath are not going to solve conflict. They will not bring unity. Gentleness and meekness will. Another thing we see in the example of Jesus is forgiveness. Forgiveness. All over the teaching of the New Testament, the teaching of Jesus, the teaching of apostles, God's people are instructed to forgive. They ask Jesus, how many times? Seven times? And Jesus says, no, 70 times seven. Now, I don't think he meant for that. Hey, go keep a tally. And as soon as you get to 490, well, you're done. You've done all the forgiveness. No, the idea is unlimited forgiveness. Uh, Ephesians 4, 31 and 32 say, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Bitterness destroys unity and it destroys relationships. And while it's true that forgiveness, that that transaction can't really go through unless there is some repentance from the other side, right? There can't be reconciliation without some movement if you've been offended, right? But my concern is many Christians take that as an excuse. Well, I'm not going to forgive unless they repent and apologize to my satisfaction. And until then, well, then I'm fine to be bitter and angry with them. No, that is not the way of Christ. I would encourage you Again, think of Jesus on the cross. Was Jesus on the cross saying, God, all these people should be struck down unless they repent, then I'll forgive them. No, what did he say on the cross? Father, forgive them. And even if there's someone that the relationship is strained and it won't get much better unless they repent or apologize in some way to you, in those situations, you should be on the edge of your seat ready to forgive like the father of the prodigal son looking out the window ready to run and put your arms around them and forgive them and saying, this is what I've been wanting to do for so long because my heart, my intention is to forgive And again, to follow the example of Christ. So humility, sacrifice, patience, meekness, forgiveness, and finally, love. Love is the example of Christ. Colossians 3.14 says, and above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. It binds all of the attributes we've talked about together. It binds all of God's people together. Love is what makes it happen. A commitment to the well-being of others. I am committed in love to them, just like Christ was committed in love to me and is committed in love. And so everything I do, because in conflict, there will be some times of, of, of confrontation. And, and so even in those moments, I'm going to speak the truth in what? Love. 
I'm gonna let that color everything that I do. So everything that I do, even in conflict, even if there is a time where I'm having to state my case or make an appeal to someone else to change, it's going to look like this. 1 Corinthians 13, verse four, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's what's going to characterize even the harder conversations of the conflict. I'm going to go into those conversations hoping for all things, believing all things, enduring all things, because I have a commitment an agape type love towards this person that isn't a feely, emotional love. It is a commitment to their well-being and really to them in Christ. So because of that, that will guide my actions. And so are you pressing into this in your marriage, in your relationships, in this church, in your workplaces, Right? Even when you're in conflict with unbelievers, are you showing them, well, this is how it looks like to deal with this as a Christian? And I would plead with you as you think through the conflict in your own life, go to God with this and say, God, I want to think the same way as Jesus. Would you show me how I'm not? Would you show me how to grow? There's one last thing here in our passage. There's, there's actually one imperative back in Philippians chapter four, and that's not to either of these women, but it is to someone else there in the congregation. Verse three, he says, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. That's the imperative. Well, who is this true companion? Again, we don't exactly know. Uh, It's possible that the word companion there is actually uh, someone's name in the church, Suzugas, right? It could have been some guy in the church. Some make the case that this was Luke who wrote the gospel of Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, clearly a companion. He would certainly fit as true companion of Paul. And there's even some reason to believe that he would have been in Philippi at this time. But I think the most likely thing is he's referring to someone that is a leader there in the church, And he's saying, hey, you, true companion, I'm commissioning you to help these women. And that also makes sense considering that the letter is addressed even uh, specifically to the overseers and deacons there in the church. But what are they to help them do? Well, ultimately, uh, this true companion is going to have to help these women agree in the Lord. His mission ultimately is to help them think like Jesus. So when you need help in conflict or when God calls you to give help to someone in conflict, remember what the point is. Point number three, point and be pointed when you're the one in need to Christ-like love. That's the the way you're going to help other people. And I do think in this specific instance, he is pointing to a leader in the church saying, hey, you help them. And that makes sense. Sometimes if there is conflict within the church, well, for a leader in the church to get involved in that discussion. And this idea here of helping someone in conflict, it's certainly not an excuse to be a busybody. And it would be a misapplication to say, well, then I'm going to go out and find as much trauma as I can in the church because blessed are the peacemakers. No, 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 no. That's not what it is 
talking about, but there will be some point where somebody in your life that you know, that trusts you, comes to you and asks for help in conflict. And I want to remind you in that moment, your main objective is to point them to Christ and his example. Now, obviously be compassionate, be gracious, be a good listener, but note, hey, my goal is to point them to Christ because your goal is certainly not just to listen to someone vent or to just listen to someone pour out their bitterness to someone else and say, well, by listening, I'm helping. No, you, you start participating at that point in the bitterness and that's not going to help. Your objective is I wanna point them to Christ. And sometimes that might be tough because you might not know all the details. There might be another side of the story you don't know, but you don't need to know all that to point someone to Christ. When I used to be a college pastor, often a young person in the college ministry would come and ask me for help with their parents, right? If you only knew my parents, Pastor Ben, right? Well, and sometimes I did. And sometimes I knew, hey, there's a lot of truth to what they're saying. And sometimes I knew, eh, they're really not handling this well, but that wasn't ever really the point in those conversations. Often I would say to that young person, all right, let's just say that everything you're telling me about your parents that you don't like is true. I'm not saying it is. In fact, I, I bet if you could see things, it's probably not all true, but let's just say it is. Even if it was, what would God have you to do? How can you honor Christ in this? And sometimes that might be what you need to say to someone else as they're coming in conflict. Okay, okay, I don't know the whole situation, but how can you honor Christ in this? And I can be an encouragement and a support and I get probably some difficult aspects to this conflict. But how can I encourage you in this? And sometimes you will need help in conflict. And I wanna just remind you in those moments, you need to be ready to be pointed to Christ. And even that should be the gist of you asking for help. Not, hey, fix this situation, whoever, or fix this other person. No, I need help to follow the example of Christ. As a pastor who's been involved in many counseling situations, when people come looking for a referee and a judge, everybody loses. That's not how it's going to work. But when people come genuinely saying, okay, this is a hard situation. I don't know what to do, but point me to Christ. That's a joy. And oftentimes you do see reconciliation there because God's greater interest is not merely resolving the conflict. God's greater interest is making you more like Jesus Christ. Are you ready for that? This is God's roadmap. And I know it's easy to hear all this and to think, yeah, yeah, yeah. That sounds good, but it's probably not realistic. And this preacher looks pretty young. He's probably pretty naive and doesn't get how the real world works. Well, I'm here to tell you, hey, this does work. Do you wanna know how I know this works? Because you're here today and you wouldn't be here today without the humility of Christ, without the sacrifice of Christ, without the patience of Christ, the gentleness of Christ, the forgiveness of Christ, and the love of Christ. If those things are good enough to reconcile you to God, I think they're good enough to reconcile you to somebody else. And of course, it, it won't always work. Some people aren't willing to reconcile, but this is what God is calling you to. And sometimes the question will come down to, do you really wanna look like Jesus or not? And this is where we're really gonna be tested. Do you really believe there's no treasure like Jesus? Do you really believe there's nothing greater than being like him? I hope we can all truly say we believe that in these moments. Let's pray together.